You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. This series is miscellaneous episodes from Douglas's website. Today's episode is Why Am I Not an Evangelical? For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. Hello, I'm Douglas Jacoby. And you're about to listen to a third podcast in a series on Christian identity, which I've titled, Why I Am Not an Evangelical, or Am I? Let's review briefly where we've come so far in the first two podcasts. Protestantism was a wonderful idea. It was inspiring to millions of people and led to a number of positive social changes, though also negative ones. Now, although the Reformation brought numerous benefits, particularly in the areas of access to Scripture through translation, freedom of speech, uh, the undoing of the gross distortions of Christianity that affected the medieval era. Protestant theology, Protestantism theology, leaves much to be desired, in my opinion. Teaching on salvation, the church, the kingdom, and other important biblical considerations fall very wide of the mark. I'm aware that some of you listening to this will be offended and you will claim uh, rightly that I have oversimplified, that I've not included enough history. And, you know, I'm not sure I could have in a podcast that's less than an hour long. Uh, I, I'm very familiar with the benefits as a student of history and a lover of history. But it's in the theology and the practice. And I think there's a connection between the lack of true discipleship among most Protestants and the theology which I've critiqued in the first podcast. Then fundamentalism. This is marked by excessively black and white thinking, wooden interpretations of scripture, you know, a failure to see uh, depth and layers and, and you know, nuance, a neglect of church history, and a failure to understand science. And that's just four of the 10 aspects discussed in the last podcast. These things drive away so many thinking men and women, and that's really unfortunate. And so we need to keep the conviction of the fundamentalists and certainly hold to black and white distinctions when indeed they are black and white, but while acknowledging the gray and while keeping in step with learning and science, um, then we come to evangelicalism. The subject of today's talk in my exploration, <clears throat> I realized I could label myself either way. Because people often ask me when I attend conferences, particularly conferences outside my own immediate church family, um, Douglas, are you evangelical? Or tell us about your church. And sometimes I, I say evangelical. Uh, more often, probably, I say independent. Well, as you listen to my talk, <clears throat> you may want to ask yourself about your own theological identity. So what does it mean to be evangelical? Well, the word evangelical comes from a word for the gospel. It's originally a Greek word, but there's even an English word, evangel, and evangelical means holding to the evangel. Uh, let me share some thoughts from Wheaton College's Institute for the Study of American Evangelicals. In the English-speaking world, the modern term usually describes the religious movements and denominations which sprung forth from a series of revivals that swept the North Atlantic Anglo-American world in the 18th and early 19th centuries. So we're talking about England, Wales. Uh, we're talking about 
uh, Scotland, Canada, the United States. These revivals associated with the 18th century, there are a number of, of key figures. <clears throat> I mentioned three, Jonathan Edwards, famous for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, American philosopher and theologian who died in 1758. Then there was itinerant evangelist George Whitfield, who died in 1770. He came uh, from Britain, uh, was extremely famous, and apparently uh, another tremendous uh, speaker, but probably the most famous would be John Wesley, who died in 1791. Wesley is the founder of Methodism, originally kind of like a chapter within the Church of England, the Anglicans, uh, but by the time of his death and soon after, they're well on their way to being um, a separate denomination. Oh, and his brother Charles Wesley is a very famous hymn writer. So these are the key figures, not to say there aren't a uh, hundred more, but Edwards, Whitfield, and uh, Wesley. And the evangelical revival led to the, the rise particularly of Methodists and Baptists from obscure sects, as Wheaton explains it, to their traditional position as America's two largest Protestant denominational families. So the Baptists and the Methodists. The Baptists were uh, really founded in the 1600s. The Methodists, though, much later, because that, that depended on the work of the Wesleys um, in the second part of the 1700s. Now, my own church tradition, not the one I was born into, but the one I was adopted into when I was 18 years old, um, it's a mixture originally of Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, although the emphasis, particularly in the 19th century, was on unity. It was a movement to call people out of denominations, not to create a new one, to call them into a freer and more uh, authentic form of Christianity, the Christianity practiced by the apostles and lived by the early church. Of course, there uh, I mentioned um, other well-known names like Charles Finney, you may have heard of Billy Sunday, but revivalism, sometimes in tent meetings, uh, was not just a frontier phenomenon. It wasn't just a, something for hillbillies. Uh, evangelicalism spread throughout the country in the 19th century was extremely strong. And certainly many movements that we're familiar with, most of which we would approve of, uh, for example, the, the women's movement uh, leading to women's rights, um, abolition, um, various benevolent societies, yeah, and even Sunday school and, of course, the temperance movement. All of these things grow out of the evangelical re revival. Now, after the Civil War, that ended in 1865 in this country, uh, society was changed very quickly. Urbanization, industrialization, uh, more detailed examination of the scriptures, uh, discoveries in science. Uh, these things began to uh, weaken evangelicalism. And it was also watered down, as the Wheaton guys remind us, insightfully, by the huge influx of non-Protestant immigrants in the later 19th and early 20th century. Just think of all the people who came to the U.S., for example, from Ireland. And, you know, they weren't heavily Protestant. So uh, we, we have a, a very powerful movement. And Maybe, I don't know, I wouldn't say it, that most Americans were evangelicals, but certainly most Americans were affected by evangelicalism uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. And if you want more details here, I've got some links in the notes that go with the podcast. Now, that's enough of an introduction. So we've, we've looked at Protestantism, fundamentalism, and now we're looking at evangelicalism. Evangelicalism is normally viewed as part of Protestantism and 
probably most fundamentalists would fit into evangelicalism as well. So what are the actual teachings? Can we boil this down? Because when you talk about movements that span countries, uh, it could be so complex it'd be impossible to, to really describe it in a class or ever to remember it. And I don't want you to despair. You can use the same uh, tools, the same memory tricks sometimes that I use. I think this could help. So let's first speak of evangelical doctrine, and then we'll talk about practice, and then we'll talk about implications. And I'm going to do this by threes. There are, there's a triad of doctrines uh, that evangelicals would subscribe to. First, Jesus is the Son of God. Secondly, the Bible is the Word of God. Thirdly, Christians have been born of God. What does that mean? Jesus is the Son of God. He's fully divine. Now, he's fully human and fully divine and provided full atonement through the cross. The Bible, as the Word of God, means it's completely trustworthy. It doesn't just bear witness to a message of God, as liberal Protestants often uh, believe, nor does it simply contain the Word of God. You know, you have to kind of separate the silver from the dross, but somehow it actually is the Word of God. And what about being born of God? Well, Christians are those who've made a decision of their own will, nothing their parents could decide for them. In my sermon tomorrow at North River, I'll be preaching from John 1, 11 to 13, one of many passages that emphasize that the decision to follow Christ, being born again, is nothing you inherit. It's nothing anyone else can do for you directly or by proxy. It's our own decision, willingly uh, deciding to commit that kind of conversion. Okay, does that make sense? The triad of doctrines. Now, what about practice? Well, it kind of all follows from this. If Jesus is the Son of God, well, we, we get to know God through him. We, we worship him. When we do worship him, it's not like we're worshiping a separate God because Jesus is Lord. This affects our identity, our prayer. Um, it affects our faith at the deepest level. We relate to God as our Father through Jesus Christ and, of course, by the power of the Spirit. What about the second point? Jesus is the Son of God, Bible is the Word of God. Well, if it's the Word of God, it means that we need to get to know it. It needs to be impressed on our hearts. We need to read it, if we can read or listen. We need to learn and grow and share. Share with each other. Share with fellow believers. Share with younger people. Share with outsiders. Because the Bible testifies to the truth, and the Bible itself can be trusted. It gives us a message from God that we need to hear. And what about the third point of rebirth? Well, if everyone uh, needs to make that decision, then we've got not only to try to reach out to those outside the boundary of Christianity, but even those seemingly within who don't seem to have made their decision or who are slipping because the stakes are um, eternal. And then Thirdly, we've talked about doctrine practice. Now let's look at these three points again uh, in the area of implications. Okay, Jesus is the Son of God. This means Christianity is unique. Uh, Christians would never say that the Buddha is also the Son of God, and so is Muhammad and Confucius and Lao Tzu and everyone else. Christianity is unique, and that means other people um, outside Christianity are lost. They are without a solution to the problem of sin, Unbelievers, members of other faiths even, need to convert to Christianity. We need to help them. 
How about the Bible as the Word of God? Well, the way evangelicals will interpret this is that the Bible is inerrant. If it's from God, there can be no mistakes at all. And many claim to take it literally. Uh, for reasons I explained in the last podcast on fundamentalism, I think we need to take more of a literary approach to the Bible. And then we'll see that we take the narratives more literally, the poetry more figuratively, the apocalypses certainly more spiritually. Uh, I don't deny the Bible is inerrant. I believe it's truthful in everything that it was intended to convey to us. However, in the Bible, the sun rises and sets, the earth is flat, and so forth. These are incidental to the message. Um, and probably most um, evangelicals, most Christians would, uh, would agree with that point, uh, though some are, are fearful of where it might lead if they admit that, well, the, the parts not related to the message uh, could be a little bit off, but the important parts are the parts that you know, we want to follow. I mean, it could sound fishy, in other words. And then the other implication, the last one, is that, um, well, since everyone needs to be saved, Christians must be serious about evangelism, about discipleship. Now, we looked at, um, I guess there are nine things you could, if you're really trying to get this in your head, <laughs> there are nine things, but it's really three times three. So we're looking at uh, faith, you know, doctrine, we're looking at uh, practice, and then we're talking about implications uh, across these three points, Jesus is Son of God, Bible, the Word of God, Christians are born of God. So what are the problems? I mean, this sounds wonderful. It sounds like, you know, who wouldn't want to be an evangelical? Well... Many self-styled evangelicals, especially today, seem to have rejected the historical faith. And lots of surveys have been done, accurate surveys. And uh, they're they're, uh, published in Christian magazines, even in the secular press. And we see a couple things, that many evangelicals don't believe in evangelical doctrines, or they're, they're quite selective. They believe in heaven, but not hell, for example. Or they really aren't that different from the world. I mean, maybe they believe these different things, but... They don't really live any differently. If you're talking about the behaviors they engage in, the ways they spend their money, how they do family, whether they remain married, and so forth. And uh, it's very alarming to me, and I don't want to sound self-righteous here. Uh, Even in my own church, my own tradition, I see in the current generation fewer and fewer people even really know the biblical story. A generation ago, it was better. Two generations ago, it was better still. Uh, but right now, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't think most disciples would do so well on a Bible test. Okay, And that's concerning because we, we're, we're not learning to interpret. We are vulnerable. We open ourselves to modern myths and superstitions. And this is what happens in the evangelical world so much. What do I mean? What kinds of uh, myths and superstitions? Well, you know, the idea that Jesus is divine, and so are we. You know, we can be enlightened just like him. There's a lot of truth in karma and crystals and auras and other New Age notions. You'd think, well, how could someone blend Christianity with New Age notions? Well, they did it in the second century, and they're doing it pretty well in the 21st century. The, uh, another idea that um, unfortunately is, is, is widespread among evangelicals is that the Bible is a good book, and I'll put good book in um, you know, air quotes, uh, inverted commas, but many don't really accept what the Bible says about judgment, morality, and other touchy subjects. They're kind of like Felix in Acts 24. Um, you know, they want to learn about the faith, 
They don't mind uh, attending a session, but when it gets personal or challenging, they kind of clock out, they check out, and they'll come back for more, but it's clear that they're not going to take it on board and really make a change. I've mentioned the tendency to believe in heaven but not hell, um, but there, there are many other things about Judgment Day, uh, sexual ethics, uh, well, well, goodness, uh, you can make your own list. Let's keep going. Many evangelicals would say that Jesus saves, but so do Buddha and Krishna. Or, you know, even if you don't have much faith at all, if you're just a good person, you'll be saved by your common decency. And now, Matthew 7, 1, the most quoted verse in the Bible, judge not how convenient that is. And certainly, I'm not trying to say that all the evangelicals are um, loose and uh, soft and, and vulnerable to these things, because I have a number of... Um, relationships in the evangelical world by people who are rock solid in their faith. They're great thinkers. We may disagree on a few things, but if we're looking at the, the vast majority, I, I'm afraid my, my critique is appropriate and the polls would, would bear me out. But I'd like to sing, single out now two issues that are significant for all evangelicals. And I think this is important, not just, well, for those who are scarcely Christian, you know, they attend an evangelical church, but even for those who may be deeply committed. And these issues I will mention are the sinner's prayer and cheap grace. And before we can conclude this lesson, I want to develop this a bit more. Well, the sinner's prayer developed on the American frontier in the 1830s. Now, this whole period was, I think, a time of reaction uh, to Calvinism. And many Protestants were Calvinistic, predestinarian. And the thought was that you cannot really know you're saved even though 1 John 5.13 says you can, they would say, well, you can't really know until you reach the end of your life because if you apostatized, if you wandered from the truth, well, then you weren't saved. In fact, you were never saved in the first place, um, which has a certain kind of circularity to it. I can see how that'd be discouraging. And so in the 1800s, even in the 1700s, in the, uh, you know, the first Great Awakening, people they wanted something more than just a theology of election and salvation and redemption. They wanted to know. They wanted not just more direct access to the personal God, but they wanted some assurance. How can you know? What would uh, memorialize the occasion? How would you know that you're okay? And under the influence of preachers, revivalists, um, there would be a feeling, a conviction and someone would, well, there were many stages beforehand, and I, you, you could read the article by my friend Steve Staten at my website on the origins of the sinner's prayer. But by 1835, basically, people were just asked to, you know, bow their heads, say a prayer, and that would be salvation. Well, that is a shallow and unbiblical approach uh, to not only our conversion, but to converting the lost. It just takes more time than for most people than would be entailed in hearing one message, coming to conviction, saying a prayer. The, the, I'm not saying that it's impossible to repent in a minute, but for most of us, that's a process that takes days, weeks, months, and sometimes years or even decades. It's a shallow and unbiblical approach. Even probably the greatest uh, evangelical you know, evangelist of all time, Billy Graham, has admitted that you know, the vast majority of the millions he's preached to who've had these conversion experiences, who've said the prayer, vast majority um, fall away, drift away very quickly. Only a small, a small number actually stick. So I think the sinner's prayer is it's kind of a gimmick. Uh, you certainly don't find anything like that in 
the centuries up to, you know, I mean, the first 18 centuries of Christianity. It's a 19th century American frontier doctrine, very individualistic. Uh, you know, Jesus said when we pray, we should say, Our Father who art in heaven, it's our Father. In evangelicalism, and through this prayer especially, it's much more my Father. It's much more about me, the individual. And of course, God cares about us. But the body of Christ is a corporate entity. It's not just one person. We're in relationship to others. And we're integrated into the church, not just in a mystical way, into the universal church, but in a very local way. And of being part of a community of believers and conversion go hand in hand. Look at Acts 2, 40 and 41. Sinner's prayer. Okay, here's the, the next thing. Cheap grace. Instead of discipleship, cheap, cheap grace. In so many ways, evangelicals mirror the world. Materialism, consumerism, lifestyles, hypocrisy, sadly. This morning, um, I was reading First Peter and... I mean, every book in the Bible is awesome, right? But First Peter is, is just superb, encouraging us to, to have a pure faith, you know, to crave the Word of God, not to be hypocritical. But this is the most common uh, accusation about Christians, including evangelicals. There's this hypocrisy. Uh, you know, people smell a rat. We say one thing and do another. Evangelicals mirror the world in their entertainments, the things they, they watch, how they react, uh, the media, the internet, uh, this would be from pornography to shopping to gambling to just wasting hundreds of hours surfing the web. Evangelicals mirror the world in their involvement in politics. Didn't really used to be that way, but probably since the 1970s it has. Uh, for example, they get sucked into Zionism. Zionism, which is actually an atheistic uh, movement that led to the foundation of modern Israel, Evangelicals tend to be hawks, not doves, very pro-military. You know, shoot now, ask questions later. And they fall for Islamophobia. And that's a dangerous thing. I'm not just talking about radical Islam. I'm talking about Islamophobia. Uh, you just make it worse when you misrepresent and you don't connect with, with Muslims. Now, in fairness, in most evangelical churches, obedience is encouraged. But seldom is there any effective means of follow-up. And even when there are small groups, they're optional and majority in most churches are not involved with them. I would say that the watering down of discipleship follows from a weak view of grace. Well, here's an interesting thing, something ironic. If you're from the Restoration Movement, Church of Christ, Christian churches, and some other independent groups, you'll appreciate what I have to say about baptism. Evangelicals with whom I interact frequently call baptism a work. Although there is a softening that position, and there are more and more preachers. Think of Francis Chan, for example, who, who are laying it out, who are rejecting the sinner's prayer and calling for repentance and baptism. But calling baptism a work and replacing it with a prayer isn't honest, because you're saying you're not saved by anything you do. Well, praying is something you do. And in John six twenty nine, faith is something that you do. And so the evangelicals are saying that You've got to do something to connect with God's grace. In Orthodox Christianity, you know, going back to the beginning, baptism was always the occasion of forgiveness. In fact, I don't think that, that, that uh, consensus changed until the Reformation. So it's only in the recent centuries that baptism has been you know, called a work or connected with so-called works righteousness. Evangelicals redefined the movement 
the moment, I'm sorry, into a less sacramental act. But it's an act either way. No one's arguing that one needs to do nothing in order to be a Christian. No one's arguing that salvation's automatic. And we're going to explore that, that second twist, the distortion of faith into cheap grace and crossless Christianity just a little bit more now. So despite all the great things of evangelicalism and the theory and, and historic Protestant doctrine, which I think is a mixed bag, I think the more closely evangelicals follow um, historic Protestant, Protestant doctrine, the more uncomfortable I become. And, and I think it's maybe because of the insistence on phraseology, the phraseology of faith alone. I mean, faith alone, which is, you know, it's, it's verbally contradicted in James 2.24, and the way that that term is normally understood among evangelicals is incorrect, leads to that false um, connection of works and law, legalism, um, on the one hand, you know, with, which are to be rejected with, with faith and grace, you know, and, and a relationship with God on the other. So uh, I hope that's, that's, that makes sense. I'm saying that that terminology of, of faith alone causes more clarity, uh, confusion than, than, than clarity. Stanley Grenz is a theologian. I've, I've read his uh, Theology for the Community of God. Um, seems like a very insightful fellow. And notice what he says about this, and I'm going to tie this discussion of discipleship back into the discussion of conversion. This is Grinz. Some sect groups, such as Church of Christ and the Christadelphians, are often treated as branches of evangelicalism. And admittedly, in their biblical emphasis, they reflect one thrust of authentic evangelicalism. Yet, when they make salvation contingent, not only on faith, but also on baptism, and they again lose sight of the essence of evangelicalism and indeed of authentic Christianity, namely the doctrine of sola gratia, salvation by faith alone. Well, so Grenz is saying that if you, if you associate baptism with salvation, you're drifting away from evangelicalism. Well, I, I think in a way he, he may be right on that, but, but not drifting away from authentic Christianity. Evangelicalism, in other words, uh, can be understood as a fairly modern movement, that is, from the 18th century on. But here's a very different voice from another evangelical scholar, well-known, the respected scholar William Mounts. Listen to Mounts. A popular debate today centers on the phrase, lordship, salvation. While not everything has been taught in connection with this concept has merit, its basic premise is proven true by Titus 2 and 3. Salvation never stops with redemption, but always moves to sanctification. There is no salvation apart from discipleship. Paul's not teaching the annulment of grace. He's teaching the full measure of grace and the purpose of God to cleanse for himself a special people, zealous for good works, so that believers may learn to be intent on good deeds. And any teaching that removes obedience from the scope of salvation comes under the same condemnation as did the Cretan and Ephesian opponents. And there he's talking about uh, the people, the false teachers Paul was dealing with in Titus and in Ephesus. That is Titus, um, uh, uh, Titus chapter 1, 2, and 3, and then First and Second Timothy. So did you notice how different a view he is? We have two evangelicals, and one is saying that, you know, to connect anything to salvation is just... You know, it's just, just wrong. You, you, you've betrayed the faith. 
And then Mount says flatly, well, there is no salvation apart from discipleship. And he understands correctly that Paul's not rejecting grace. You know, just as most atheists that that I know are are much better people than what would be required by their theology, their ideology, I'm sorry, ideology, not theology. They don't believe in God. But in an atheistic world, it's very hard to argue that something is right or wrong. But most atheists try to live morally. Many evangelicals, similarly, are far more devoted to Christ than their theology stipulates. Um, I suspect that the vast majority prefer to have sweet nothings whispered into their ears, easy believism, signs and wonders, health and wealth, judge not religion. Yeah, so yeah, I'm an evangelical insofar as it means believing the good news, the evangel, and a lifelong commitment to spread the message. I mean, I believe in Jesus as the Son of God, the Bible's Word of God. Christians must be born of God. But what about this other stuff, right? Uh, The evangelicals seem still to be overreacting to Catholicism and works righteousness. I mean, I'm not an evangelical for some of the same reasons. I'm not a Protestant or a fundamentalist. And resorting to emotional, high-pressure tactics in order to cause the lost to say the sinner's prayer, that's alien to the spirit of the New Testament. It's exemplified nowhere in Scripture. It's not even one example. Okay. Enough about me. The series isn't meant to be the theological ramblings of an old guy, much less yeah, just history lessons. This is important stuff. So what about you? May I just close with a few questions and thoughts? And I'll ask them to myself, and you can ask them to yourself. First, does my life demonstrate a serious engagement with the Word of God? You know, is it a shallow, haphazard process of writing God's word on my heart, or am I serious about it? Is that the first place I go if I'm seeking wisdom? How closely am I following the Lord, the Lord who is the Son of God? Have I bought into the distortions of Protestantism and evangelicalism, those that have been mentioned in these first and third podcasts? If we hold fast to Jesus as God's Son, the Bible as his word, and Followers of the Bible uh, are those who are reborn, becoming children of God. Well, then we're evangelicals. And in the purest and, and I think a righteous sense of the term, we should be proud. Um, it's, it's on track. And, and that's, a, that's a great faith to have. It's a real faith. It is personalized. It's, an, it's a faith that we can live by, we can die by. And that will cause change all around us. And historically, Uh, evangelicalism has caused change, some bad, many good. But if being evangelicals means that we're mirroring the world, we're not that different except we've got an insurance policy. We're like the world with its worldly living and self-focus, cheap grace, the self-improvement kind of messages. Well, what's going to happen? We'll be no different to the vast majority of so-called Christians. And at the last day, we certainly won't be able to claim our church affiliation or, or some tidy formula of doctrine uh, as our salvation. I believe this shallow phrase or this repeated mantra, or I was part of this church or that movement. No, because it really does come down to living a life of obedience. And to the, to the extent that evangelicals do that, I, I praise them, and to the extent that they don't, uh, I, I call for repentance. 
So I think I'm an evangelical in one way, probably not in the other way. But how about you? I hope you've appreciated this series, and I would look forward to hearing any of your response. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.